love at the bus stop, soul-searching on the subway, fishing for America, and flying into the past. It's all a grand journey as Stephen Colbert, John Turturro, and more perform stories that take us places. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Stay with us. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I love stories, so I'm very excited to host Selected Shorts. Not only do I get to listen to these stories, I get to talk about them too, which, even if I weren't hosting this show, I would probably be doing anyway, to my circle of very kind and very patient friends. A story is always a journey, so on this week's Selected Shorts, we're doubling down on stories framed by some kind of travel or transit. Three American masters, James Baldwin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Kurt Vonnegut, offer encounters on subways, planes, and buses. And a charming Italian story handpicked by Jumpa Lahiri lands us on a rickety fishing boat bound for America. We gain access to our characters' thoughts as their minds wander while in transit. These musings lead to risk, adventure, happy endings, and tragedy. Selected Shorts celebrated the 100th anniversary of the transgressive satirist Kurt Vonnegut with a live event at Symphony Space. Vonnegut is best known for fiction like his anti-war novel Slaughterhouse-Five, but he had a kinder, gentler side, too. City is a playful, meet-cute story set at a bus stop. Meet-cute always takes two, so we chose a stylish pair of actors, Bhavesh Patel and Sarah Steele, to read for us. Patel's theater credits include the Broadway revival of Present Laughter. On television, he's appeared in The Good Wife and Blue Bloods. He also wrote the book for Getting the Band Back Together. Sarah Steele also has Good Wife cred and appeared in the spin-off series The Good Fight. Film credits include her breakout role in Spanglish and, more recently, Ask for Jane and Vienna and the Phantoms. She's appeared on Broadway in The Country House and The Humans. Here they are with City by Kurt Vonnegut. He held his smarting left eye open with his fingers and stared at its reddened reflection in the mirror face of the penny scales. It felt as though the cinder were still there, but he couldn't see it. He dabbed helplessly at his eyeball with a corner of his handkerchief. Filthy place to live. Soot blowing in your eye every way you turn, he thought. Handkerchief's none too clean. Get a nice infection this way. She studied her vague image in the drugstore window and wondered if sitting at a desk all day wasn't making her wide at the hips and whether a string of pearls might not make her blouse look less severe. The blouse was just back from the cleaners and look at it, she thought. Doesn't pay to wear anything white in this town. Wear it one day and it looks like you've been dusting a coal bin with it. Well... There's the fourth number 15 bus and still no number 11. If this man doesn't quit jabbing at his eye, he'll poke it out. (laughs) Somebody ought to tell him to blow his nose. That's the way to get a cinder out. Thought everybody knew that. Just blow hard once or twice and... Got it, that time. He thought with relief, staring vengefully at the wicked black speck on his handkerchief. Felt like it was the size of Gibraltar. By gosh, that must be the fourth number 15 bus and still no number nine. Might stay in town for a show. Should get home and wash out some socks. And write mom. (laughs) He yawned. Same faces on the same corner every night. There's that plump little mouse that catches the number 11. (laughs) He arched his eyebrows. Get a load of her, would you? Just primping away and admiring herself in the window. Never get tired of looking at themselves, do they? Somebody ought to tell her about clothes. That blouse makes her look like a schoolmarm. He straightened his bow tie. 
If the bus isn't here in two more minutes, it's the movies for me. Look at those big, blue, innocent eyes. Girl like that needs protection. Men with round faces shouldn't wear bow ties, she thought irritably. <laughs> Makes their faces look wide and fat. If I were his girlfriend, I'd make him wear the regular kind. And I'd make him quit wearing striped ties with striped suits, too. Unconsciously, she gave a vigorous little nod in confirmation of her sentiments. There's another 15. <sighs> Funny about this city, isn't it? I've seen him here every night for almost a month, and all I know about him is he takes a number nine bus. <sighs> she sighed. By the time I get home tonight, there will be just enough time to manicure my nails and write mother before bedtime. Could stay down for a show. Be kind of dangerous, maybe, going home all by myself late at night. A girl hasn't any business. Huh. He's weighing himself. Betty doesn't weigh an ounce over 155. Somebody ought to make him take care of himself, put some meat on his bones. He should weigh at least 180. 154 pounds, he said to himself. Lost 18 pounds in 10 months. Hamburgers, coffee, and coleslaw. Never seem to have an appetite anymore. Give a week's pay for an honest-to-God home-cooked meal. She looks like she's getting enough to eat all right. <laughs> Regular little butterball. I like that. Looks tired, though. Office is no place for a girl like that. Bet the wolves give her a bad time where she works. Girl like that ought to be married and raising a big family somewhere. Wonder if her folks know what she's up against turned loose in a city like this. No telling what might happen to her. If she were my daughter, I know darn well I wouldn't let. Men are so helpless, she thought. <laughs> Look at the collar, a disgrace. Somebody ought to turn it for him. Turn the collar and he could wear the shirt for another year, easy. His eyes met hers for an instant and she looked away quickly to stare blankly at the cigar store across the street. She found herself composing a letter to her mother. The work is very interesting, not much new. It is hard to make friends here, but I met a very nice boy this evening. We went to a show and had sodas afterwards. It was just like back home. He isn't like most of the men here. You'd like him very much. She glanced at him furtively and caught him looking at her again. She blushed, turned her back, and with a look of deep concentration, studied the cluttered display of aspirin and alarm clocks in the drugstore window. Just ask her how to get to the theater, he thought, his heart pounding wildly. Can't be any harm in that. Then... Ask if she'd like a show and a soda afterwards. Sure, people do it all the time. It's the only way there is to get to know people in this city, for God's sake. She's looking right this way again. I could pretend I'm lost and ask him how to get to the theater or something, she thought nervously. I could just touch his sleeve and ask him. Oh, dear, here he comes. What would he think of me if I stopped him and asked? Maybe she'll think I'm just another fresh guy, like all the rest, just out to... Oh, no, I just can't. I'd die if he thought I was just another cheap... <laughs> she bit her lip. He's past now. He looked like he was going to say something, like he wanted to, but then he just kept on going. He isn't like all the rest. If only I could let him know. No guts. No guts. No guts. He sneered at himself. 
He shuffled to a stop a dozen feet from her and craned his neck in a pretense of looking for a bus from this new vantage point. If only I could find out for sure she wouldn't take it the wrong way if a bus pulled up to the curb and its doors banged open. Oh, oh, it's bye-bye, baby, now. There she goes for her bus, the number 11 at last. He glanced distractedly at the front of the bus. That, that's not here. It's another 15. She walked in front of the bus, studied the large number 15 deliberately for several seconds, then climbed aboard without looking back. The door slammed behind her and the driver shifted into gear, ready for the light to change. It didn't work, she told herself, and she sank into a vacant double seat, tired and miserable. I'll get off at the next corner and walk. He's hammering on the door. Oh no, what'll I say? With a dazed expression, looking everywhere but at her, he walked down the aisle and took the seat beside her. (laughs) He had but a single thought. What'll I say? He sat in silence, pondering. Gradually, he became aware that his left eye was smarting furiously again. Picked up another one, by golly. He was grateful for the distraction and began to dab busily at his eye once more. The light flashed green and the bus roared away from the curb. Blow your nose real hard, she said softly. Maybe that'll get it out. He blew manfully. (laughs) I'll be darned, he said, beaming. It worked. His eyes met hers squarely for the first time. Thought everybody knew that, she said modestly, her voice growing more confident with every word. Just blow hard once or twice and... The bus jerked and stopped. A passenger got on and looked at them. The bus rushed away again. He said, This isn't your regular bus, is it? She gave him a timid smile. It's not yours either, I guess. No, he said. It's not mine either. Golly, she said. Whose bus is it? Ours, he suggested. Okay, she said, and snuggled a little. Where is it taking us? I don't know, he said. We'll ride it together and find out. That will be nice, she said, and snuggled again. They looked at each other shyly, and both of them smiled. The gloom of the city was suddenly washed away. There was all the clean, warm world and the brightness of the future to talk about as the two rode on in tremulous expectancy toward the unknown magic at the end of an enchanted line. Bhavesh Patel and Sarah Steele performed City by Kurt Vonnegut. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The Vonnegut evening was one of our first live performances since 2020 at Symphony Space. And Patel says his walk to the theater made the story resonate. I literally just walked up here from Times Square because I was like, I haven't done this in forever. I'm just going to walk. And I walked and I saw so many different types of people. And I realized I'm this guy. Like, I'm this guy, this nervous guy, walking through the city, motoring through my life, feeling like the hero of my own story, and yet actually just as terrified as everybody else. That was Bhavesh Patel, backstage at Symphony Space. Our second work is a powerful excerpt from James Baldwin's novel, Another Country. Baldwin's tremendous range and potent humanity reshaped American fiction and pushed at the boundaries of American society. 
1962 novel centers on a struggling black musician, Rufus, and the relationships among the people in his life after his suicide. And it's the climactic moments right before his death that we give you here. The piece begins on a subway and ends on a bridge, and it demonstrates Baldwin's ability to get deep into the hearts and conflicts of his characters. Our reader is Nathan Hinton, whose host of regional, Broadway, and off-Broadway credits include Angels in America. On television, he's been featured on Madam Secretary and Elementary. Here he is to perform from James Baldwin's Another Country. Then he stood at the subway steps and looked down. For a wonder, especially at this hour, there was no one on the steps. The steps were empty. He wondered if the man in the booth would change his $5 bill. He started down. Then, as the man gave him change and he moved toward the turnstile, other people came, rushing and loud, pushing past him as though they were swimmers and he nothing but an upright pole in the water. Then something began to awaken in him, something new. It increased his distance, it increased his pain. They were rushing to the platform, to the tracks. Something he had not thought of for many years, something he had never ceased to think of, came back to him as he walked behind the crowd. The subway platform was a dangerous place. So he had always thought it sloped downward toward the waiting tracks. And when he had been a little boy and stood on the platform beside his mother, he had not dared let go her hand. He stood on the platform now, alone with all these people who were each of them alone and waited in acquired calmness for the train. But suppose something somewhere failed and the yellow lights went out and no one could see any longer the platform's edge. Suppose these beams fell down. He saw the train in the tunnel rushing underwater, the motorman gone mad, gone blind, unable to decipher the lights, and the tracks gleaming and snarling senselessly upward forever, the train never stopping, and the people screaming at windows and doors and turning on each other with all the accumulated fury of their blasphemed lives. Everything gone out of them but murder, breaking limb from limb and splashing in blood with joy. For the first time, joy, joy, after such a long sentence in chains, leaping out to astound the world to astound the world again. Or the train in the tunnel, the water outside, the power failing, the walls coming in, and the water not rising like a flood, but breaking like a wave over the heads of these people, filling their crying mouths, filling their eyes, their hair, tearing away their clothes, and discovering the secrecy which only the water by now could use. It could happen. It could happen, and he would have loved to see it happen even if he perished too. The train came in, filling the great scar of the tracks. They all got on, sitting in the lighted car, which was far from empty, which would be choked with people before they got very far uptown, and stood or sat in the isolation cell into which they transformed every inch of space they held. The train stopped at 14th Street. He was sitting at the window, and he watched a few people get on. There was a colored girl among them who looked a little like his sister, but she looked at him and looked away and sat down as far from him as she could. The train rolled on through the tunnel. The next stop was 34th Street, his stop. People got on. He watched the stop roll by. 42nd Street. This time a crowd got on, some of them carrying papers, and there were no seats left. A white man leaned on the strap near him. Rufus felt his gorge rise. At 59th Street, many came on board and many rushed across the platform to the waiting local. 
Many white people and many black people chained together in time and in space and by history, and all of them in a hurry. In a hurry to get away from each other, he thought. But we ain't never going to make it. We've been fucked for fair. <laughs> then the doors slammed a loud sound, and it made him jump. The train, as though protesting its heavier burden, as though protesting the proximity of white buttock to black knee, groaned, lurched. The wheels seemed to scrape the track, making a tearing sound. Then it began to move uptown, where the masses would divide and the load become lighter. Lights flared and teetered by. They passed other platforms where people waited for other trains. Then they had the tunnel to themselves. The train rushed into the blackness with a phallic abandon, into the blackness which opened to receive it. Opened, opened, the whole world shook with their coupling. Then, when it seemed that the roar and the movement would never cease, they came into the bright lights of 125th Street. <laughs> the train gasped and moaned to a halt. He had thought that he would get off here. But he watched the people move toward the doors, watched the doors open, watched them leave. It was mainly black people who left. He had thought that he would get off here and go home. But he watched the girl who reminded him of his sister as she moved sullenly past white people and stood for a moment on the platform before walking toward the steps. Suddenly, he knew that he was never going home anymore. The train began to move, half empty now, and with each stop, it became lighter. Soon, the white people who were left looked at him oddly. He felt their stares, but he felt far away from them. You took the best, so why not take the rest? He got off at the station named for the bridge built to honor the father of his country and walked up the steps into the streets, which were empty. Tall apartment buildings, lightless, loomed against the dark sky and seemed to be watching him, seemed to be pressing down on him. The bridge was nearly over his head, intolerably high, but he did not yet see the water. He felt it. He smelled it. He thought, how he had never before understood how an animal could smell water. But it was over there, past the highway, where he could see the speeding cars. Then he stood on the bridge, looking over, looking down. Now the lights of the cars on the highway seemed to be writing an endless message, writing with awful speed in a fine, unreadable script. There were muted lights on the Jersey Shore, and here and there a neon flame advertising something somebody had for sale. He began to walk slowly to the center of the bridge, observing that from this height, the city which had been so dark as he walked through it seemed to be on fire. He stood at the center of the bridge, and it was freezing cold. He raised his eyes to heaven. He thought, you bastard, you motherfucking bastard. Ain't I your baby too? He began to cry. Something in Rufus which could not break shook him like a rag doll and splashed salt water all over his face and filled his throat and his nostrils with anguish. He knew the pain would never stop. He could never go down into the city again. He dropped his head as though someone had struck him and looked down at the water. It was cold, and water would be cold. He was black, and the water was black. He lifted himself by his hands on the rail, lifted himself as high as he could, and leaned far out. The wind tore at him, at his head and shoulders, while something in him screamed, why, why? He thought of Eric. His straining arms threatened to break. 
I can't make it this way. He thought of Ida. He whispered, I'm sorry, Leona. And then the wind took him. He felt himself going over, head down. The wind, the stars, the lights, the water all rolled together. All right. He felt a shoe fly off behind him. There was nothing around him, only the wind. All right, you motherfucking God almighty bastard. I'm coming to you. Nathan Hinton performed an excerpt from James Baldwin's Another Country. You can hear why Baldwin starts the scene in a subway. The noise and the crowd become all the things Rufus will never get away from. The subway is hell, the bridge a link to a problematic heaven. James Baldwin was a fearless, lyrical, supple writer. You really get the sense of him as someone who allowed himself to be open to whatever moved and infuriated him and needed exploration. His work is powered by a unique turbulence, which you can see inside a character like Rufus, but also you can see it in the larger landscape of the world that Baldwin describes. It's there in his character's experiences around race, sex, longing, art, injustice, and trauma. And then, of course, there's the city. With its chaos and 24-hour unpredictability, it feels like a perfect living laboratory in which this writer could experiment freely. In a city, as in James Baldwin's fiction, there's movement in various directions, as well as immediacy and friction and contradictions, some out in the open, others hidden from view, unless you know where to look. Baldwin told us where to look. When we return the American dream and what to do on a layover, I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Did you hear that? It's an audience preparing to see live theater at Symphony Space in New York. One of my favorite sounds. Why? It means anticipation. It means no turning back. It means that for the next two hours, I get to live alongside that audience in a world of literature brought to life right in front of me. I'm Matthew Love, a writer and producer at Selected Shorts. While my job includes reading stories and creating scripts for our hosts, The reason I love my job involves standing in the wings to hear a pin drop while someone like Ellen Burstyn is reading a Margaret Atwood piece. Stories, performance, and community are the lifeblood of Selected Shorts. If you feel the same, please consider going to SelectedShorts.org and donating to the show. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Our third story on this show, featuring modes of travel and transport, is The Long Voyage by Leonardo Shasha. A group of Sicilian fishermen hope to make new lives in America, that mythic place where every man can brandish a wad of dollars. And we got a dazzling performer of Sicilian descent to bring these characters to life. John Turturro is an indie film giant who's worked regularly with Spike Lee, Adam Sandler, and the Coen brothers, and recently appeared in The Plot Against America and Severance. Here he is to read Leonardo Shasha's The Long Voyage. It was a night that seemed made for it, Shrouded in a darkness you could almost feel the weight of as you move. And it was frightening. The breathing of that beast of a world, the sound of the sea, a breathing that came right up and expired at their feet. They stood with their cardboard suitcases and their bundles on a stony stretch of beach protected by the hills between Jala and Likata. They had reached there at nightfall. They had left their villages at daybreak, villages of the interior, far removed from the sea, 
clustered in the arid plague of feudal lands. For some, it was the first time they had seen the sea. The thought of having to cross the whole of it from that deserted beach in Sicily at night to get to another deserted beach in America, also at night, was deeply disconcerting. Because the deal was this. I take you on board at night, the man had said, a kind of traveling salesman, judging by the style of his patter, though with a serious and honest face, and I land you at night. You'll land on the beach in New Jersey. I'll put you ashore a short walk from Norvajorke. Those who have relatives in America can write and tell them to go wait for you at Trenton Station. Twelve days after we sail, you can do the calculation. Of course, I can't guarantee the exact date you'll get there. Let's suppose that the sea might be rough. Let's suppose that the Coast Guards might be on the lookout. One day here or there will make no difference to you. The important thing is to land in America. To land in America really was the important thing. How or when hardly mattered in the end. If their letters had succeeded in reaching their relatives with those confused and scrawled addresses that they managed to inscribe on the envelopes, then they would make it too. Whoever has a tongue shall cross the sea, as the proverb rightly had it. And they would have crossed the sea, the great dark ocean, and they would have reached the story and the farmi, the stores and farms of America, the welcoming circle of brothers, uncles, nephews, cousins, the warm, luxurious, spacious houses, the automobiles that were as big as houses. 250 lira, half on departure, half on arrival. They kept the money in the style of scapularies between their skin and shirts. They had sold everything they had in order to scrape it together. The house, the land, the mule, the donkey, that year's provisions, the chest of drawers, the blankets. The craftier ones had resorted to money lenders with the secret intention of cheating them, at least this once, after years of harassment. They relished the thought of how the faces of those moneylenders would look when they received the news that they had gone. Come and find me in America, bloodsucker, and maybe you'll get your money back. <laughs> but without interest, and even if you do manage to track me down, the dream of America was awash with dollars, with cash no longer clutched in a shabby wallet or hidden beneath their shirts but stuffed casually into trouser pockets and pulled out by the handful the way they'd seen their relatives do it, the relatives who had left starved, thin as rakes and scorched by the sun, then returned after 20 or 30 years, only for a short vacation, with their round, rosy cheek faces handsomely contrasting with their white hair. It was 11 o'clock already. One of them lit the lantern the signal that they were ready to be collected and taken aboard the steamer. When he extinguished it again, the darkness seemed even thicker and more menacing. But just a few minutes later, from the relentless breathing of the sea, a more human, domestic sound emerged from the water, like that of buckets being rhythmically filled and emptied. And then came the sound of voices, a muffled chatter. They found themselves in the present of Signor Melfa, which was the name they knew the organizer of their great adventure by, even before realizing that the boat had touched land. Is everyone there, he asked. Signor Melfa turned on a torch and counted heads. Two people were missing. Maybe they've had second thoughts. Hmm? Maybe they'll turn up later. Either way, so much the worse for them. What's the point of waiting for them with the risks that we're running already? Everyone agreed that it was not worth waiting. If any of you doesn't have the cash ready, warned Signor Melfa, they might as well start walking home again right now. Because if anyone thinks that they're going to spring that little surprise when we're already on board, they're making a big mistake. If that happened... I'd swear I'd drop the whole lot of you back off again. Then everyone would suffer, thanks to one person, which isn't fair. 
And that person would be made to pay with a beating from me and from his mates too, that he'll remember for as long as he lives, if he's lucky, that is. Everybody swore that they had the necessary cash, down to the last lira. Get aboard then, said Senor Melfa. And suddenly each of the travelers became a formless mass, a confused bundle of luggage. Christ! And have you brought the kitchen sink with you as well? Senor Melfa began to blurt out curses, only stopping when the whole cargo, men, bags, and baggage, had been bundled into the boat, at the risk of persons or luggage ending up overboard. For Senor Melfa, the difference between a person and an item of luggage was that the person had 250,000 lira in him, stitched into his coat, or held between his shirt and skin. He knew them only too well, these peasant bastards, these louts. The journey did not last as long as expected, 11 nights, including the one on which they left. And the nights were counted rather than the days, because the nights of suffocating, atrocious overcrowding. They felt submerged in the combined reek of fish, diesel, and vomit, as if in a hot, black, bituminous liquid. They were oozing it at daybreak, exhausted as they climbed on deck, seeking light and air. If for them the idea of the sea was associated with a verdant, undulating plain stirred by the wind, the real sea terrified them. Their insides clenched and knotted. Their eyes were painfully blinded as if they so much attempted a glance towards the horizon. But on the 11th night, Signor Melfa ordered them on deck. At first they thought they could see dense constellations that had descended onto the sea like flocks. But these turned out to be the towns of wealthy Americans, glittering like jewels in the night. And the night itself was enchanting, calm and gentle, half moon sailing amidst a transparent fauna of clouds with a lung-clearing breeze. This is America, said Senor Melfa. Is there any danger it might be some other place? Someone asked, since he had spent the entire journey thinking about the fact that there are no roads or tracks on the sea, and that it was godlike feet to find the right route without mistakes, steering a boat between sky and water. Senor Melfer gave him a pitying look and asked everyone else, Have you ever seen a skyline like this? One in your neck of the woods? Can't you feel that even the air is different? Can't you see how brilliantly the towns here sparkle? Everyone agreed looking with pity and resentment at that companion of theirs who had dared to ask such a stupid question. Let's settle the bill, said Signor Melfa. They fumbled beneath their shirts and extracted the money. Get your things ready, said Signor Melfa after stashing it away. They only needed a few minutes, having almost exhausted the provisions they supplied themselves with for the journey. All they were left with was the odd item of linen and the presents for their relatives in America, a chunk of pecorino, a well-aged bottle of wine, something embroidered to put at the center of a table or the back of a sofa. They disembarked, walking on air, weightless, laughing, and humming tunes, and one burst into a full-throated song just as soon as the boat began to move off. So you understood nothing! hissed Senor Melfa angrily. You're determined to land me in it. As soon as I've put you ashore, you can rush up to the first cop you see and get yourselves deported on the next available boat. I don't give a shit. You're free to kill yourselves in any way you like. I've kept my side of the bargain. This is America, and I've dumped you here. Now, for Christ's sakes, give me the chance to get back on board. They gave him more than enough time to get back on board. They remained sitting on the fresh sand, undecided, not sure of what to do next, blessing and cursing the night, which gave them protection as long as they stayed still on the beach, but what would turn into a terrible ambush if they dared to leave it. Signor Melfa had advised them to scatter, but no one felt inclined to separate from the others. 
Who knew how far Trenton was and how long it would take to get there? Then they heard in the distance, sounding unreal, a song. It sounds like one of our own Carters, they thought, and that the world must be the same everywhere. That everywhere man expresses in the song the same melancholy, the same sorrow. But they were in America now, the cities that blaze beyond the horizon of sand and trees were the cities of America. Two of them decided to head off as scouts. They went in the direction of the lights that the nearest town cast into the sky. Almost immediately, they found a road, tarmaced, well-maintained. How different roads are here compared to back home. But really, they had expected it to be wider and straighter. They kept away from it to avoid meeting anyone. They walked alongside it through the trees. A car passed. It looks like a Seicento. Then another one, looking like a Millicento. And then another. Yeah, they keep cars like hours for amusement. They buy them for the kids, like people back home buy bicycles for theirs. Two deafening motorbikes passed, one chasing the other. It was the police. They couldn't afford to make any mistakes. Thank goodness that they stayed off the road. And finally, there were the signs. They looked along the road in both directions, stepped onto it, and went near enough to them to read, Santa Croce Camarina, Scoliti. Santa Croce Camarina. I've, I've heard of this place before. Yeah, it sounds familiar to me too, and even Scoliti rings a bell. Yeah, maybe one of our relatives lived there. Perhaps it was my uncle before he moved to Philadelphia. If I remember rightly, he was living in a different city before Philadelphia. My brother also lived someplace before heading to Brooklyn, but I can't really remember what it was called. And anyway, we're saying Santa Croce, we're saying Scoliti, but we've no idea how they pronounce these words here. America isn't pronounced like it's written. That's true. And the great thing about Italian is just that. It sounds exactly how it's written. But we can't spend the night out here. We've, we've got to take a risk. The next car passes, I'm stopping. I'll just say, Trenton! <laughs> People are more polite here. Even if we don't understand what they're saying, they're bound to point to give a sign, and that way we'll work out where to find that blasted Trenton. Around the curve, 20 meters away, a Cinquecento emerged. The driver saw them dart out with their arms raised, waving for him to stop. He slammed on the brakes, cursing. He didn't think it could be a holdup in an area as quiet as this, and opened the door thinking they wanted a lift. Trenton, one of them asked. Okay? <laughs> asked the driver. Trenton. What effing Trenton are you on about? The driver exclaimed, cursing. He speaks Italian, they both said, <laughs> looking at each other to see what to do next. If perhaps the time had come to reveal their situation to a fellow countryman. The driver shut the door and switched the engine back on. The car jerked forwards, and only then did he shout out to the two men standing in the road like statues, drunken, drunken cuckolds, cuckolds, and sons of the rest was drowned out as he accelerated away. There was a protracted silence. Now I remember, said the one a moment later, who thought the name Santa Croce sounded familiar. My father went to Santa Croce Camarina one year when things had gone badly in our region. He went there for harvesting. Then they flung themselves down as if they had been knocked into the ditch at the side of the road. There was no hurry, after all, to deliver the news to the others that they had disembarked in Sicily. John Turturro performed The Long Voyage by Leonardo Sciascia from the Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories, edited by Jhumpa Lahiri and translated by Erica Segre and Simon Carnell. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're getting there. Transportation joke. 
We've been on a bus with lovers-to-be, on a subway with a tortured artist, on a rickety fishing boat with hopeful immigrants. And now, F. Scott Fitzgerald wants us to get on and off a plane. He wrote Three Hours Between Planes for Esquire in 1941. But the story is timeless. A traveler winds up in his old hometown on a layover and pays an impulsive visit to the woman he fell in love with when they were both 12. And just as Kurt Vonnegut surprised us with the gentle flirtatiousness of City, Fitzgerald lays aside misery and melodrama for a rueful tale about whether or not you can go home again. We were lucky enough to get a reader who seems never to endure layovers, professionally at least. The man who went immediately from hosting The Colbert Report to hosting The Late Show, Stephen Colbert, reads F. Scott Fitzgerald's Three Hours Between Planes. It was a wild chance, but Donald was in the mood, healthy and bored with a sense of tiresome duty done. He was now rewarding himself. Maybe. When the plane landed, he stepped out into a Midwestern summer night and headed for the isolated Pueblo airport, conventionalized as an old red railway depot. He did not know whether she was alive or living in this town or what her present name was. With mounting excitement, he looked through the phone book for her father, who might be dead, too, somewhere in these 20 years. No. Judge Harmon Holmes, Hillside 3194. A woman's amused voice answered his inquiry for Miss Nancy Holmes. Nancy is Mrs. Walter Gifford now. Who is this? But Donald hung up without answering. He had found out what he wanted to know and had only three hours He did not remember any Walter Gifford, and there was another suspended moment while he scanned the phone book. She might have married out of town. No. Walter Gifford, Hillside 1191. Blood flowed back into his fingertips. Hello. Hello. Is Mrs. Gifford there? This is an old friend of hers. This is Mrs. Gifford. He remembered, or thought he remembered, the funny magic in the voice. This is Donald Plant. I haven't seen you since I was 12 years old. (laughs) Oh! The note was utterly surprised, very polite, but he could distinguish in it neither joy nor certain recognition. Donald, added the voice. This time there was something more in it than struggling memory. When did you come back to town? Then cordially, where are you? Out of the airport, just, uh, just a few hours. Well, come up and see me. Sure you're not just going to bed? Heavens no, she exclaimed. I was sitting here, having a highball by myself. Just tell your taxi man. On his way, Donald analyzed the conversation. His words, at the airport, established that he had retained his position in the upper bourgeoisie. Nancy's aloneness might indicate that she had matured into an unattractive woman without friends. Her husband might be either away or in bed. And, because she was always ten years old in his dreams, the highball shocked him. (laughs) But he adjusted himself with a smile. She was very close to thirty. At the end of a curved drive, he saw a dark-haired little beauty standing against the lighted door, a glass in her hand. Startled by her final materialization, Donald got out of the cab saying, Mrs. Gifford? She turned on the porch light and stared at him wide-eyed and tentative. A smile broke through the puzzled expression. Donald, it is you. We all changed so. Oh, this is remarkable. As they walked inside, their voices jingled the words, all these years. And Donald felt a sinking in his stomach. This derived in part from a vision of their last meeting when she rode past him on a bicycle, cutting him dead and in part from fear lest they have nothing to say. It was like a college reunion, but there the failure to find the past was disguised by the hurried, boisterous occasion. Aghast, he realized this might be a long and empty hour. He plunged in desperately. You always were a lovely person, but I'm a little shocked to find you as beautiful as you are. It worked. The immediate recognition of their changed state, the bold compliment made them interesting strangers instead of fumbling childhood friends. 
Have a highball, she asked. No, please don't think I've become a secret drinker, but this was a blue night. I expected my husband, but he wired he'd be two days longer. He's very nice, Donald, very attractive, rather your type and coloring. She hesitated. And I think he's interested in someone in New York, and I don't know. After seeing you, it sounds impossible, he assured her. I was married six years, and there was a time I tortured myself that way. Then one day I just put jealousy out of my life forever. After my wife died, I was very glad of that. It left a very rich memory, nothing marred or spoiled or hard to think over. She looked at him attentively, then sympathetically as he spoke. I'm very sorry, she said. And after a proper moment, you've changed a lot. Turn your head. I remember father saying, that boy has a brain. You probably argued against it. I was impressed. Up till then, I thought everybody had a brain. <laughs> That's why it sticks in my mind. What else sticks in your mind? He asked, smiling. Suddenly, Nancy got up and walked quickly away. Ah, now she reproached him. That isn't fair. I, I suppose I was a naughty girl. You were not, he said stoutly, and I will have that drink now. As she poured it, her face still turned from him. He continued, do you think you were the only little girl who was ever kissed? Do you like the subject? She demanded. Her momentary irritation melted, and she said, what the hell, we did have fun. Like in the song? On the sleigh ride. Yeah, and somebody's picnic, Trudy James, and at Frontenac that, those summers. It was the sleigh ride he remembered most, and kissing her cool cheeks in the straw in one corner while she laughed up at the cold white stars. The couple next to them had their backs turned, and he kissed her little neck and her ears, and never her lips. And the Max party where they played post office and I couldn't go because I had the mumps, he said. I don't remember that. Oh, you were there. And you were kissed. And I was crazy with jealousy like I never have been since. <sighs> Funny, I don't remember. Maybe I wanted to forget, but why? He asked in amusement. We were two perfectly innocent kids. Nancy, whenever I talked to my wife about the past, I told her you were the girl I loved almost as much as I loved her but I think I really loved you just as much. When we moved out of town, I carried you like a cannonball in my insides. You were that much stirred up? My God, yes. I... He suddenly realized that they were standing just two feet from each other, that he was talking as if he loved her in the present, and that she was looking up at him with those lips half-parted and a clouded look in her eyes. Go on, she said. I'm ashamed to say I, I like it. I didn't know you were so upset then. I thought it was me who was upset. You, he exclaimed. Don't you remember throwing me over at the drugstore? He laughed. <laughs> you stuck your tongue out at me. I don't remember at all. I, it, it seemed to be you did the throwing over. Her hand fell lightly, almost consolingly on his arm. I've got a photograph book upstairs I haven't looked at for years. I'll dig it out. Donald sat for five minutes with two thoughts. First, the hopeless impossibility of reconciling what different people remembered about the same event. And secondly, that in a frightening way, Nancy moved him as a woman as she had moved him as a child. Half an hour had developed an emotion that he had not known since the death of his wife, that he had never hoped to know again. Side by side on a couch, they opened the book between them. Nancy looked at him, smiling and very happy. Oh, this is such fun, she said. Such fun that you're so nice, that you remember me so beautifully. Let me tell you, I, I wish I'd known it then. After you'd gone, I hated you. What a pity, he said gently. But not now, she reassured him. And then impulsively, kiss and make up. That isn't being a good wife, she said after a minute. I really don't think I've kissed two men since I was married. He was excited. But most of all, confused, had he kissed Nancy or a memory? Or this lovely, trembly stranger who looked away from him quickly and turned the page of the book? Wait, he said. Uh, I don't think I could see a picture for a few seconds. 
We won't do it again. I, I don't feel so very calm myself. Donald said one of those trivial things that cover so much ground. It wouldn't be awful if we fell in love again. Stop it. She laughed, but very breathlessly. It's all over. It was a moment, a moment I'll have to forget. Don't tell your husband. Why not? I usually tell him everything. It'll hurt him. Don't ever tell a man such things. All right, I won't. Kiss me once more, he said inconsistently. But Nancy had turned a page and was pointing eagerly at a picture. Here's you, she cried, right away. He looked. It was a little boy in shorts standing on a pier with a sailboat in the background. I remember, she laughed triumphantly, that very day it was taken, Kitty took it and I stole it from her. From a moment, Donald failed to recognize himself in the photo. Then bending closer, he failed utterly to recognize himself. That's not me, he said. Oh, yes, it was at Frontenac, the summer we, we used to go to the cave. What cave? That was only three days in Frontenac. Then he strained his eyes at the slightly yellowed picture. That isn't me, that's Donald Bowers. We did look rather alike. Now she was staring at him, leaning back, seeming to lift away from him. But you're Donald Bowers. She exclaimed. Her voice rose a little. No, you're not. You're Donald Plant. I told you on the phone. She was on her feet, her face faintly horrified. Plant, Bowers, I must be crazy, or was it the drink? I, I was mixed up a little when I first saw you. Look here, what have I told you? He tried for a monkish calm as he turned a page of the book. Nothing at all, he said. Pictures that did not include him formed and reformed before his eyes. Frontenac, a cave, Donald Bowers, you threw me over. Nancy spoke from the other side of the room. You'll never tell this story, she said. Stories have a way of getting around. There isn't any story, he hesitated. But he thought, so she was a bad little girl. And now suddenly he was filled with wild, raging jealousy of little Donald Bowers. He who had banished jealousy from his life forever. In the five steps he took across the room, he crushed out 20 years and the existence of Walter Gifford with his stride. Kiss me again, Nancy, he said, sinking to one knee beside her chair, putting his hand upon her shoulder. But Nancy strained away. You said you had to catch a plane. It's nothing. I can miss it. It's of no importance. Please go, she said in a cool voice. Please try to imagine how I feel. But you act as if you don't remember me, he cried, as if you don't remember Donald Plant. I do, I remember you too, but it was all so long ago. Her voice grew hard again. The taxi number is Crestwood 8484. On his way to the airport, Donald shook his head from side to side. He was completely himself now, but he could not digest the experience. Only as the plane roared up into the dark sky and its passengers became a different entity from the corporate world below did he draw a parallel from the fact of its flight. For five blinding minutes, he had lived like a madman in two worlds at once. He had been a boy of 12 and a man of 32, indissolubly and helplessly commingled. Donald had lost a good deal, too, in those hours between the planes. But since the second half of life is a long process of getting rid of things, that part of the experience probably didn't matter. Stephen Colbert performed Three Hours Between Planes by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This is such a lovely and rueful piece Fitzgerald could really sling his characters around, but here we slide in and out of risk and hope and disappointment almost imperceptibly. When past and present collide, this theme will never go out of style. Fitzgerald lived in the jazz age, not the Instagram and TikTok age, and even with an imagination that could create a hollow, broad-shouldered suit like Jay Gatsby, 
he might not have been able to imagine a time in which people could stare at electronic images of other people they haven't seen in years or decades, drawing conclusions about how time has treated and sometimes ravaged those other people. Seeing someone from your past, whether it's a photo or that person's actual living self, reunites you not only with them, but also, I think, with your own earlier self. So you will excuse me now because, to paraphrase the very end of The Great Gatsby, I have to beat on a boat against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past to go look up Neil Zimmerman, a boy from my ninth grade homeroom. By now you will have realized that our trope, modes of transport, wasn't really about how the characters got there, but about what they found out. The same is true of the journey in any good short story. It's only as good as its emotional destination. So thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimpkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 